Just shoot the guy in the fucking face. Come on now. You're still listening. This is our final transmission. Welcome to Final Transmission. I'm Sam. I'm Jamie. How you doing, Jamie? I'm pretty. I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm great. It's quite late on a Friday night. I said quite late. Sure it's is. Ten to nine. That's really late for me these days. Holy yeah, cow. Me too. We're talking about. We're talking... <laughs> <laughs> I was pulling it back, Sam. It's that late. Sorry. We are talking about Nightbreed, directed by, written by, conceived by, and disowned by sort of Clive Barker that's uh, a bit of a tease yeah disowned by that's something I don't know anything about he also wrote the novel am I correct that the movie is based on I don't want to jump the gun here but I saw this movie on the shelf in the in the video shop so many times and every time I looked at it and said fuck that movie it looks terrible (laughs) because of the cover I fucking hated the cover of this movie that's kind of the issue, really, with the whole thing. Should we should we take a minute, do a synopsis, and then yeah. let's just get right into it? For sure. Come on, man, does that thing even work? No. There's nothing out there, it's just dead air. Hey, Sam, guess what? What, Jamie? Uh, Final Transmission, this podcast right here is brought to you by Red Scare Industries. The greatest punk rock label of all time. They've uh, they've got a lot going for them, haven't they? Celebrating 20 years in 2024. 20 big years, 20 big turnips. Uh, what do you like about Red Scare? One of my favourite records ever is actually on Red Scare, and that is Mastin Intruder's self-titled record. That's a big... Big shout, a huge sack of turnips right there. It's a real, real record. It is a real record and uh, did big things. Uh, huge band, great band, mysterious band. Grab it before someone shoplifts it. Fuck yeah. Uh, and with that, let's get on with the, the chat, shall we? Let's get back to it. So I'm interested, Sam, to see if you can synopsize this for us. I can try my damnedest. I made some notes and I feel like I skinnied it down to a, a pretty succinct, <laughs> rough draft. Okay. Three or four pages. Uh, <laughs> so as I understand it, and you might have to, this synopsis might need fact checking. Boone, the character of Aaron Boone is our main guy. And he has horrific nightmares in which he is transported to a place called Midian, where he is uh, kind of besieged and attacked by all kinds of uh, demons was my assumption he visits a psychiatrist on a regular basis a gentleman by the name of dr decker played by david cronenberg uh which is pretty awesome by the way mm-hmm. and he he talks to his psychologist in detail about these these nightmares these dreams um with these monsters what happens next is that boone is effectively framed for a series of murders and he <laughs> he is killed by police in a grisly shootout. However, he somehow comes back to life with the help of some monsters and goes to a place called Midian where he and his girlfriend 
do a whole bunch of stuff with these monsters called the Nightbreed who aid him in his quest, which is essentially to stop the killings that are happening. Uh, there's a huge showdown at the end of the movie. The result of that showdown is Boone and the love of his life standing in a pretty spectacular final scene. That's a terrible synopsis. <laughs> I mean, that is that is what happens in the film. You mm. you kind of missed out the quite big role of, of Eigerman and his crazy militia that just want to kill all monsters. The second yeah, that they a, discover that they exist. A, a central <laughs> conflict between this army of Nightbreed and, and this very bizarre militia of yeah. what I assume to be human nutbars. Is that fair? Yeah. It's safe to say I struggled to track some aspects of this well, that's, movie. That's that's going to be a thing that I, that, I, that I wanted to talk to you about. But let me, sure. let me set the scene a little bit first. So my relationship with Nightbreed is I first watched this when I was maybe 14. Wow. And that's too young, Jamie. And I watched the theatrical cut, which is very different to the version that we watched, which is the director's cut, which came mm-hmm. out in 2014. The original came out in 1990. I've got a whole spiel here, so I'll just go through it real quick. So coming off of his first movie success, or his first real movie success, Hellraiser, and obviously Clyde Barker's massive success as a horror writer, he was given a much bigger budget. Hellraiser was about a million pounds. This is more like 10, 11 million pounds, depending on where your sources are. In the in the commentary, Barker says it was, it was about 10 mil. That's a beefy, beefy tag. That's a, that's a lot of money to jump up to from a mil. Yeah. And like, he made Hellraiser and it's amazing for like no money. Mm-hmm. So imagine what amazing shit he could do with, with 10 times that amount of money. Well, we'll talk about that. Cabal is quite a cinematic novel, so it kind of makes sense of that. It also builds on some of those themes and ideas that that are in Hellraiser um, about the sort of the duality of monsters they are you know considered terrifying if you if you oppose them but they're just trying to live their lives although there's not many scenes of Pinhead kicking back and having a cup of tea is there making a sandwich yeah Uh, ultimately the studio interfered quite heavily uh, the studio was 20th Century Fox and Morgan Creek. It was a co-production. And they interfered quite heavily and basically brought in another editor whose name I have forgotten. Did I write it down? I don't think I did. But he's a he's quite a big editor. He edited Terminator 2, Rambo. Like he was basically is a guy that can make quite succinct action films. And they brought him in to basically cut down this two and a half hour monster into a one hour, 45 minute sort of popcorn churner type film. Clyde Barker was pretty fucking unhappy about this. He did all the press and he was like, eh, it's not quite the film I wanted to make, but here it is. There's Which loads- studios love, right? When the director says that. That's yeah. their favorite selling point. <laughs> yeah, and he didn't make an awful lot after this, like directorially. Mm. He did Lord of, Lords of Illus- Lord of Illusions, which, you know, is is also a film. It's pretty fucking bad. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not seen it. I only saw Hellraiser last year, Jamie. Well, well, there you go. I like the theatrical cut. That was the film that I saw when I was 14. That's the film that up until 2010 
was the Nightbreed for me. It was the only one mm-hmm. that I had. I loved it. I always had a sense that there was more. Obviously, I've read the book. Um, I always had a, a bit of a sense that there could, there could be there could be more to it. I obviously right. were aware that Barker wasn't mega happy with it. There were some reshoots. There was some stuff that was thrown away. So in um, the early 2010s, they found a VHS work print that had the full film. And they chopped up some of the bits that they wanted to include in the movie that was taken out by this editor, whose name again, I still can't remember. Uh, and they put it back together. They sort of Frankensteined this theatrical cut with all these unseen bits. And they toured it as the Cabal Cut. Okay. Uh, which I managed to I managed to see in 2012 at Grimfest. And it was great. I met a bunch of the cast as well. So uh, the guy that played Anarka, uh, the guy that played, what's his name? The one with the chin and the big head. His name is... Mark Goldblatt. <laughs> yeah, so so he's the editor. But yeah, so I, was, I got to meet the cast, a bunch of the cast, and the people involved in putting it together. And it was a pretty special experience. And it was seeing... We're seeing Nightbreed in its all its glory with like some pretty shonky looking VHS bits that were like they looked like they were from a tenth generation video. It was wow. pretty bad, but it just felt nice to be able to see the whole thing. Mm. And I kind of thought that would be it. And there was some talk of them trying to clean up the those bits and release it as a Blu-ray. And just as that was happening, they found basically all of the all of the footage in uh, some film warehouse in fucking Ohio or somewhere. And how so many of these how many of these film warehouses exist loads. In which are just untold treasures sitting there untouched for decades until some dick knocks one over and outrolls the fucking director's cut of Nightbreed. How is this still happening? Like, I think it's insane. Like they talked about at the uh, Wickerman 50th anniversary screening. They talked about yeah how they believed that the real the the original negatives with all of the footage in them were buried under the M6 <laughs> well accidentally like no just like they were i guess there's landfill under there or something so like just yeah i mean they they found a bunch of that footage for the wicker man but yeah the original negatives are buried under the M6 holy shit is that why you have to pay a toll <laughs> yeah that's the, the Wicker Man toll. You have to pay the Wicker Man to go on the M6 now. Yeah, so 2013, 2014, around that time, Barker went back in with a, a new editor and they pulled together this film, which is, he says, in line with his vision. I think it's probably tempered by the fact that it's 20 years later, 25 years later, whatever. Mm. So he replaced some of the theatrical scenes uh, or the, some scenes from the theatrical cut with different bits or alternative takes, chopping in some of the stuff that we saw in the Cabal cut, change the ending a little bit, stuff like that. And so that's what we have here. That's that's um, the director's cut, the journey to the director's cut, which I think most people know. It was quite a big story around the sort of 20, between 2010 and 2014, there was a real excitement about Nightbreed. There was a, there was a movement online called Occupy Midian, uh, which is the most early 2010s name for a, for a thing ever. So my question to you is... Hit me. Having not seen the theatrical cut, mm-hmm. having not read the book, mm-hmm. does this film make a lick of sense to you? Yes and no. So f- from, from having watched it a single time, I definitely walked away with more questions than 
satisfying experiences in terms of narrative. Mm. Uh, that being said, I mean, that kind of hampered my viewing pleasure slightly. However, I think it makes sense enough to do what it's supposed to do for somebody like me, which is entertain me and at times genuinely wow me. I think maybe Clive Barker is telling the story that he needs to tell himself in this edit, uh, which is obviously 100% his right as the, the sole you know creator of the entire universe and everything in it. Mm. But for, for me, uh, didn't need maybe some of the extra fat on the movie. But that's, you know, I enjoyed watching that because I know that that's as close to a pure director's vision as you can get, really. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it hits the mark in terms of, you know, an enormous amount of things we'll talk about in this episode. But the narrative became a little bit muddy for me here and there. And I think that's largely due to the revisit. Because I bet the theatrical cut makes maybe not perfect sense, but it's probably pretty zippy and linear, right? They cut out a lot of stuff, which, to be fair is pretty minimal in the director's cut as well. So, like, hmm. in in the novel, at the beginning, you establish that Boone is mega dependent on Decker. And hmm. their relationship is very much that, um, that Decker is, like, carrying him. And, like, the, those the sessions that they have together are, like, the only thing that's getting him through his life. Hmm. So it makes it really easy in the novel for Decker to manipulate him into thinking that he's committing these crimes. Which is not what you get in the movie at all. No, I mean in the in the theatrical cut, it's even less. It's just yeah. like uh, they have the scene at the beginning where him and Laurie, where Boone and Laurie are in bed, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Decker's been calling," and then the next scene is him in his office, right? And he's like, "Oh, you know, I'm very concerned about this thing that's concerning." And yeah, so it's like I think my major criticism of this film is that. Clive Barker is too close to the material. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like it's I think he's it, it's all obsessed. in his head. It's all mm. in his head. So he doesn't need to. He knows the the backstory between Decker and Boone. So like he doesn't need to see it. But like a viewer that isn't maybe me does. Yeah. Because otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. You are, you are guessing a bit, right? You're using yeah. a lot of intuition in terms of there's obviously some kind of abusive dynamic in this therapist-patient relationship. I'm not 100% sure what it is, but because I know popular culture, I assume the patient is being manipulated by the doctor. But like you said, there'll be people who are just like, why is that happening? And yeah. that's like, you know, to Clive Barker, a, a, a total given. And to maybe the average punter just rocking up for the theatrical cut completely mystifying so yeah i bet that leaves some people a little bit uh lost and maybe feeling a little bit disconnected from some of the action an interesting thing about decker in the book is that he's fucking hench really yeah like his his whole stick is that he's like because boone is like a big strong guy yeah he's like meant to make boone feel safe and the only way he can do that is by being the the biggest bulkiest luferigno looking guy so that's what he's like in the book that's a cool twist. I wonder why they didn't do that in the movie. That would have been easy. Like yeah. those kind of guys were just like ubiquitous at the time, right? You could just reach out and grab a semi-competent acting bodybuilder. Yeah, absolutely. But we get David Cronenberg, which is beautiful in its own special way. Yeah, it really is. That was a, a really, really pleasant surprise for me. Uh, not just that he's there, but that he really delivers. Like, he's he doesn't... fucking great, isn't he? Yeah, he's really good, yeah. <laughs> You can kind of see how he's such a great director, the way that he, you know, sometimes when you see directors act, you're like, right, I get why you direct. 
but I think he uh, he knows how actors work. He's he's very good at you know inhabiting that yeah um, you know inhabiting that mindset and just just laying it all out there. I thought something in me thought he was going to hold back a little bit, and I didn't really didn't really feel that at all in the performance. Though he's great. When did you realize that Decker is the the masked killer? Pretty early, to yeah. be honest. Before you're really given any huge clues, I sort of as soon as I picked up, there's something fucky here. I think I assumed it was him, and then it just sort of turned out to be. It's because he plays it very creepy. He does, yeah. He's pretty ominous. I, th- I wonder if he's like trying to play it as like cool and distant because he's trying to sort of, or because he wants us to think that he's trying to create like a, a bit of distance in this sort of weird codependent relationship between mm. psychiatrist and patient, but it never really comes across like that. It's very. To me, it's very clear that he is a bad, bad killer man. Yeah, there's a slyness there, and I think yeah. it's it's quite subtle in the performance, but you do feel uh, that it's more than like a greasy con man vibe. There's yeah. something genuinely, if not evil, then definitely sinister coming through in yeah. his every level mannerism. It's very subtly done. I think it's, it's really cleverly done. Uh, I'd be interested to know what it was like on set between the two of them. Do you think he took a lot of direction? I mean, how does a director take direction, especially from someone like Clive Barker, who, by all accounts, is a bit of an eccentric dude on set? Well, from from what I know, he had no issue taking direction. He didn't offer too much advice or, or like, try and get in the way or mm. try and take over, which was a, a thing that Clive Barker said that he was worried about. Mm. He just sort of was directed and was quite confident with Clive Barker because they're such different stories. Mm. It's not like the sort of sort of story that Cronenberg would ever tell. Although I think Decker is quite a Cronenbergian character in some ways, but it might just be what Cronenberg brings to it. So I don't think there was too much in the way of, of, of stuff like that. In the book Cronenberg on Cronenberg, there's one mention of Nightbreed and it's by the, the guys sewing it together rather than from uh, any direct quotes from Cronenberg. I did read... Mm. An interview from Fangoria, ninety one, ninety two, somewhere between eighty seven and ninety, they were doing like five months worth of Nightbreed uh, content around that time, and he speaks really highly of Clive Barker in that interview and how they have sort of similar sort of psychosexual vision of of horror and of mm-hmm. morality and or life in general but very different sort of sensibilities with it. I've got a quote here. Clive's work is very much a reflection of the age of miracles and primal emotions, whereas mine comes primarily from the age of reason. Very interesting. Yeah. I mean, they both lean very heavily into, you know, physicality and horror, not just physical horror, but like you said, the the sexual and the relationship with the psychosexual, and there's always religious undertones. There's always a morality tale at play that is fantastically uh, ambiguous I think yeah. in terms of message which I love I think Nightbreed is very unambiguous in terms of its mm-hmm. message I think it wears it on its sleeve what do you think the, the the brief version of the message is if you had to chisel it on a gravestone what would the message of Nightbreed be well I think there are two two sort of front and centre messages here humans are the real monsters which you know we've seen a thousand times mm-hmm. but never quite like this and I like that and the other sort of theme or other message is around finding your chosen family, coming together with with other people who maybe are, are outcasts or 
whatever, and, and, and starting your own community, being your own chosen family, which obviously is a story that that is probably quite personal to Clyde Barker as a as a as a gay man. Much, much posher gay man than I was than I realised. <laughs> yeah. Like I always thought he was like I know he's from Liverpool, so I just sort of assumed that he was like some working class hero. But he is the poshest fucking man. Have you heard him speak? <laughs> I have heard him speak, yeah. It's it's very old English. Yeah, it's like Rada shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think I think those are the, the key things. I think the outcast stuff and some of the sort of deviant and kink stuff that comes into the film is obviously coming out of Barker's sexuality and also his weird sensibilities in terms of uh, in terms of what he or his predilections in terms of sex. But I don't think you have to be gay to 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 have it resonate. I think it's pretty clear that a lot of I guess horror fans have had this resonate with them, myself included. Anyone that was sort of bullied or felt a bit weird in school, or uh, which I know we both did. Yeah, anything where there's there's an outsider element or an outcast theme, uh, horror fans I think tend to gravitate towards that. Uh, yeah, and there's a huge section of horror audiences that feel empowered by stories about victimization or ostracization of any kind, whether it's families, friendships, something about you know the fundamental nature of you that is seen as wrong by society in any way, yeah. shape, or form. And I love one thing I love about the way Clive Barker approaches this kind of stuff is there's obviously like deep-rooted reasons for a lot of the messaging buried in his movies but but i love that he just loves exploring that stuff yeah i love that he clearly really enjoys pulling ideas out of those feelings you don't at any point feel like you're being force-fed any kind of message here it's just and i feel the same about hellraiser especially bringing in a lot of the kind of kinky aesthetic it's more this is what i like to see this is what i like to fuck with and this is what i want to put in front of people I've got a huge amount of respect for how he does that because there's a tremendous sense of fun in there as well. Yeah. Uh, and it, it cuts through every layer of storytelling. I think it goes right from aesthetic, right through the actual narrative and the, the way that events play out right through to performance. And I think as a director, he weaves that in front to back, start to finish, and everyone involved seems to totally get it, which I think is all part of his pretty incredible style of world building. So yeah, any kind of uh, outsider stuff, I think he hits it out of the park every single time this is exactly what barker's doing for us right he's telling us don't judge a book by its cover guys you got that message nice and early at 14 i was still fucking around in the library judging every book i could find by its cover <laughs> and only did i watch this movie today so thanks clive where were you when i needed you he was there he was there i just wasn't ready yeah I was way too scared of Clive Barker's stuff at that age, dude. I would have been too scared at maybe like 17. I couldn't have watched Hellraiser as a really young guy. It just, it would have fucked me up. Do you know what your earliest exposure to Clive Barker was? Yeah, like a year ago. Was, was I really? finally watched Hellraiser. Uh, I might have, I mean, I obviously was aware of the Hellraiser aesthetic and lots of the key notes, but I had not sat and watched the entire movie until... 2020 well maybe 21 2021 i think right because stuff like freddy krueger messed me up real bad when i was a kid and people told me that pinhead was worse and i was like cool i know i'm not going to be touching that <laughs> for a while i didn't have the same like hunger for the scariest stuff imaginable that you did i was still a little bit lee so mine was uh, i saw rawhead rex which is a pretty bad movie based on 
a Clive Barker story, which is much better than the movie. Okay. A short story. Have you, I don't, have you seen it at this point? No. I've seen it again. I've seen the cover. Okay. So, so Rawhead Rex is basically this huge, evil, insane monster that kind of looks like Rocksteady or Bebop, whichever one it is, was like gnarly as fuck. Nice. I'm in. And not gnarly in the way that the turtles might say it, but like actually gnarly. He pisses in someone's face. It's fucking great. It's fucking... I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> That's the whole movie. I mean, Bebop this... and Rocksteady piss in someone's face. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question for you. What was Clyde Barker's involvement in the movie Candyman? He wrote the screen, the short story that it was based on. Okay, so that's probably my first experience because I did see Candyman at a sleepover, maybe in, I'm going to go with maybe 90, 97, 98. Hmm. That, that's probably my first experience with Clive Barker material. I wouldn't have known it was Clive Barker, obviously. People were just telling me how fucking scary it was. And I believed him, and it kind of wasn't. So, Well, Candyman is very different to the source material. Right. Obviously, Candyman is uh, the movie is is a story that's very much about race mm-hmm. and in the in the Clyde Barker story there's none of that because it's a Clyde Barker story mm-hmm. and like he didn't really fuck with race stuff because he was he was dealing with his own different kind of others yeah his other kind of ism phobia yeah etc was uh where did Clyde Barker how did Clyde Barker transition into Hollywood? Do you know? Because a lot of this, a lot of his movie making is obviously Americanized to to some degree. I'm not too I'm not too sure of the story, mm. but obviously he was he was part of a theatre troupe mm-hmm. first and foremost, and they were making shows in Liverpool, and then they went to, they went to London and formed the the, the Dog Theatre Group, whatever they were called, the Dog something dog related, and like a lot of the people who are in this. And who were in Hellraiser were part of that theatre troupe. So Doug Bradley was involved. The guy that plays Narcisse in this was involved. Mm-hmm. The guy that was Onaka, who's also Butterball in Hellraiser, was was involved. And so they, they made a lot of stuff together that was pretty, pretty avant-garde and weird and was pretty popular, but none of them were making any money. Mm-hmm. So Clyde Barker, at one point, I think in a documentary that I saw, Simon Bamford, who plays Anarcha in this, says, Clyde Barker said, I'm going to try and give writing a go, see if I can make some money. Which is funny, because obviously he did. When they were in the theatre troupe in the sort of late 70s, they were they were experimenting, making some films. Uh, Redemption released a couple of them in the late 90s, which I haven't seen, but I would be interested to see. It's weird, isn't it? Because like, it feels American, but they also feel very British. Like basically yeah, everybody yeah. is British and they're just putting on American accents. And That's I guess what's it's, interesting to me about Hellraiser for sure. It, yeah. feel, it has that grimy, super uncomfortable British feeling to it that yeah. revolts me in it, like every cell of my body. Yeah, it, it, like, it doesn't so, feel a million miles away from Extro. No, it doesn't at all. It feels like fucking Emmerdale and Extro with American accents. It's agony. Mm. It's absolute agony <laughs> from start to finish. I guess, like, that's what movies look like. So if you're making movies, that's what they look like. <laughs> yeah, but but why does it have to be that way, Jamie? Why? <laughs> I need. I think I need to talk about why that kind of thing revolts me so much in therapy. I think I need to, I need to yeah. really 
dig well, into I'll, this. I'll get Dr. Decker on the line. And- yeah, please do. He's my kind of therapist. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be emotionally wrecked, distraught, and annihilated by my therapist. <laughs> so we talked uh, way, way back in our episode about the burning. Mm. You mentioned that you, uh, you were interested in seeing a slasher that had some supernatural elements in it. Yeah. Does Nightbreed fulfill that for you? It totally does, and I wasn't expecting it to at all. It, it has a, a, a huge ladling of goopy fantasy over the whole supernatural element, which uh, normally I would find slightly hard to swallow, but somehow the balance here is pretty much perfect. You know, if this was a cocktail, it would just be totally quaffable. One of those cocktails that you drink way too quickly and get way too drunk, because yes, people are having their fucking heads cut off slasher movie style, but it's being done by crazy fantasy beast people and it's being done so with classic horror editing so yeah yeah it it does all tie together really nicely it's clearly a vision and that doesn't just land in place does it it's it's taking notes from slasher it's taking tons of heady fantasy stuff and then it's also pulling in this great kind of not necessarily gory but definitely body horror related um lens that Clive Barker is obviously looking through a lot of the time in his uh, his kind of quest for not quite gross out, but definitely very uncomfortable visuals. So for me, yeah, it kind of became the the fantasy horror slasher of my dreams, of yeah. my nightmares. Because I think like the, the stuff that Decker's doing is so traditional slasher, mm-hmm. and like it looks amazing and it feels terrifying in some points. There's that the scene quite early on where he's killing that family, and like it's not very gory, but the kids just <laughs> watching. Yeah. And it's like fucking hell, man. Yeah. He's a masked stabber. And yeah. and that's a slasher as it gets. His mask is also great. It's really scary. Yeah. It obviously like gets ripped off later on. I think like Trick or Treat kind of definitely saw this. There's there's a whole bunch of uh, very, very classic slasher elements to his killing as well, the way the bodies are found and positioned and his his knife work is very slasher. Yeah. And I think it's also done in a way that it doesn't lean too hard into the, the the killer being the focal point of the movie. It's not following this slasher around and doing these POV shots and everything else. It's clever in other ways. He's almost subsidiary. He, it's kind of like he is... Uh, these things are happening, but look at all the other shit that's happening around it. You know, he doesn't pull focus too much, which I think is really clever editing again and, and probably very deliberate writing. So, yeah, absolutely in love with the, the way the slasher stuff happens in the movie. It's not dismissive, but it's underplayed enough to not dominate which yeah. i absolutely love so one of clive barker's big issues with the theatrical cut right was the marketing that made it look very slasher heavy interesting which is weird because the cover that we all saw when we were kids is that mm. goofy fucking breakfast club like all standing in in midian looking like best buddies the imdb cover is great it's just a shot of someone's eyes it says Laurie was wrong, and it has Nightbreed in huge green letters. That's a movie that I would watch. It looks a little bit Eraserhead. It's got a cool classic horror aesthetic. Well, so the the full the full thing there actually says Laurie thinks she knows her boyfriend. Yeah, Laurie, Laurie was wrong. Yeah, um, and that's when they're trying to play up the slasher element. I think right focusing on Laurie is a ludicrous idea when you actually watch the movie in terms yeah. of. Well, you know, I think Laurie, Laurie and Boone are both really fucking passive throughout this movie they, they're they like I guess the conduit in which you like discover Midian and all that stuff but like I feel like Boone's journey is meant to be this 
big self-destructive journey where he burns his life down so he can be a part of this new society that'll accept him for who he is. Right. Not what society's trying to make him into, which is, you know, a murderer. Yeah. But he's actually super passive. Like, he just sort of lets all these things happen to him. He wants to go to Midian, but he doesn't really know why. His dreams about Midian are really scary, so why would you want to go there? I don't know. Mm -hmm. He's not an interesting protagonist to me. and No. She's not either. There are, there are two looks in this film mm. that I think are the coolest that anyone's ever looked at a film ever. And one of them is Boone when he's like, after he's become Nightbreed and Decker stabs him and he's got his, he's got his leather jacket on and his sunglasses on and like blood all over his white t-shirt and like looks kind of a little bit like that look that's um, like Bill Paxton in Near Dark or even mm-hmm. like Cassidy the Vampire in the Preacher comics. And it's fucking so cool. And then the other one is when Rachel and Narcisse come to rescue Boone from the prison and mm-hmm. Narcisse is wearing that fucking cowboy hat and the yeah. sunglasses and like all his face is shredded off. Yeah. And he's wearing that amazing King Rocker t-shirt. Yeah. It's just incredible. Like what nice a disguise. What a look. It's amazing. <laughs> I like that Boone wears his denim his leather jacket. Uh, even when he's sleeping in the hospital. <laughs> he's just always wearing this huge leather jacket. It's great. I, I think there's there's stuff done visually with him that, that definitely kind of tags him as the lead and, you know, harks back to classic bad boys. There's a weird kind of nod to, like, James Dean-style poses. He'll, he'll, like, lean in a doorway. And I, I see how he's being pitched. I'm just not buying it necessarily. He's not charismatic enough for me as an actor to no. really hang the whole thrust of the movie on. But thankfully, he has a, a, a huge supporting cast of incredibly charismatic monsters around him, yeah. which totally pull focus. His girlfriend, I think, she kind of is just his girlfriend for a lot of the movie, which kind of yeah. bummed me out. And the bits where she leads, the kind of like mini bottle episodes that are all about her in the movie, were just completely forgettable for me. And I was kind of just waiting for a, a monster moment or a you know a practical effect to kind of pull me yeah. back. I think I think she's amazing, but I just don't think the film does anything with her. Like I think Anne Bobby, the the one that plays Laurie, mm-hmm. is incredible. She brings this like really intense vulnerability mm-hmm. and like has this really strong presence that just sort of doesn't really go anywhere. Like it, she's so good that you forget that she's just incredibly beautiful. Like and and she just is so almost like weird and childlike in the movie. She seems very young. Yeah. But I love the scene where she's singing in the bar. That's a great scene. Yeah, good. Uh, I mean, it gave me big Twin Peaks vibes. Yeah. So I read in the the IMDb trivia that she's singing live there, and right. I just didn't I didn't believe it. Mm. And then when I was watching the, the the movie with commentary, so that's that scene's not in the the actual cut. But when I was watching the movie with commentary, they're talking about that scene and the, and they're talking about how she was singing live. I just mm. I can't believe it. It's amazing. It's an absolutely note perfect gutsy as fuck singing performance is great yeah no it's great I, I mean it's a song that i love anyway right and then like in the context of the film it's fucking great like it's just oh i love it really this that is song. a real like hark back to that golden age of cinema where every performer was both a great musician probably a like an absolutely banging physical comedian of some kind yeah a great stage actor a good movie actor probably like a fucking you know great swimmer or <laughs> loads of physical talents yeah i don't really know where that's gone to be honest i mean i guess it still exists in in 
maybe just not in mainstream Hollywood where, you know, we get our stars from different places now. But I love the, the kind of classical training where, you know, your, your absolute grade A hunk can also just start singing Barbershop with three other members of the cast on yeah. the side of the side of the set. I think that's that's a pretty amazing thing. We, we sort of lost that performer aspect, the artist, yeah. I guess, and now we've got stars. But yeah, she she's obviously incredibly talented. I just don't think you really get that in this movie. Because the character is so passive, she just sort of lets... That's everything that happened to her. her. Her entire function is to chase Boone around, mm. to have that almost like I don't want to I don't want to invoke the T word here, but that sort of that that Bella and Edward relationship in Twilight, where like I thought Bella, you were going to say T Rex. I had no idea where you were going with that. <laughs> well, okay, maybe the 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 Tammy and the T Rex relationship in Tammy and the T Rex. <laughs> Which is an amazing film if you haven't seen it. Haven't. It's about uh, a guy who's who is reincarnated as an animatronic dinosaur. Of course. And, and the dinosaur in the film is animatronic. Like so, right. they know they know that it's animatronic, and they have they go on wacky adventures. It's great. Sounds great. I think was it Screen Factory who put out this this uh, release? Also put that out a couple of years ago. It's fucking one of those lost batshit eighties movies. Love it. Well, speaking of animatronics, I, w- I know that you love this movie and I, I kind of, knowing you, kind of know why. But I want to know your thoughts on the practical effects and the monsters of this movie because they are big in terms of screen time mm. and presence and kind of the focal point of the movie. So do you want to talk a little bit about the monsters? I would love to. So I, I can rank my, my, my favourite monsters. Fuck yeah, let's go. My favourite monster of all of them is Anaka because he's just a guy with some tattoos and a big necklace, and right. I and I love that. <laughs> I think what happened there is because Anaka um, Simon Bamford is butterball in Hellraiser. Yeah, that costume had sewn up eyes, had no ears, had no nostril holes, mm-hmm. and he just had fourteen hours a day in these in this suit yeah. where he couldn't where he couldn't see or hear or could only breathe through his mouth. Yeah. So I think that when he was cast in this, Clyde Barker was like, don't worry. <laughs> Just no, wear this necklace. <laughs> no makeup, don't worry. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, so I, I love Anaka and his little fucking Boston Terrier. Yeah. Just like, why? Why have you got a Boston Terrier? <laughs> the reason is one of the one of the guys on set, what are they called? Assistant directors, mm-hmm. w- was bringing his dog to the set. Right. And they were like, put it in the movie. Let him in. Yeah, it's a cute dog. It's great. It's Is amazing. He in the union. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I think it did end up costing them loads of money. I bet it did <laughs> to like pay for this fucking dog. Brilliant. Most of the monsters that I really love are the ones that don't speak. Mm-hmm. So like, there's the there's the one who's like got something in front of her face and she pulls it down and she's got no no chin. Yeah, like all the skin peeled off the lower part of her face. Yeah, yeah. I love the the flying hammerhead shark for no reason. That's one of my faves. I'm a big fan of the visual of Leroy Gom, who's the guy with the extra arms that come out of his belly. Yeah, the kind of ones that creep up to his head. Yeah, but they don't do anything. I mean, they no. do, but they just sort of they sort of come out and they go behind his neck, and that's all yeah. they do until they are somehow in someone's face pulling their eyes out. <laughs> yeah, like the guy in that in that scene where he does that, the guy is holding a gun to his face and like waits for the 15 seconds it takes for his arms to come out and go around his head. Just shoot the guy in the fucking face. Come on, now. yeah. There's a lot of that. Did you like uh, Did you like the moonhead guy, the guy with the huge chin and forehead? Uh, Pelequin is that Pelequin? Pelequin. 
No, it's not Pelequin. It's Pelequin. That's that's Kinski. Pelequin is the guy that is that is coded as as uh, as a black guy, but is played by a white guy. Pelequin is a great name. I hate Pelequin. Why do you hate Pelequin? I just think as a character, he's a dick. Yeah, for sure. And like his whole, like it creeps me out that he's he's so like coded as like of color, and he is definitely a white guy. Right. Um, not only a white guy. A white guy that directed Johnny English Reborn. What? <laughs> yeah. And those fucking St. Trinian's remakes. Well, I like Johnny English, so I won't hear a word said against my men. <laughs> I love the huge fat demon guy with the neck that falls forward and the heads on the neck at mm. the end there. Like, I don't know what the fuck's going on there. You only get a glimpse, but it's pretty amazing. I mean, you get you only get a glimpse of so many of them, and like so much work went into all of them. I think that's that's the real, real beauty of this movie is that like so much work went into making it feel real. I mean, we'll get onto how real I think things feel, mm. but like to to build that world so you really feel like you're in something. I think the sets look like you could blow them down with a, a strong <laughs> gust of your armpit. I find myself in horror movies so often wanting so much more of specific creatures knowing it's not going to ruin it if i see more of it do you know what i mean sometimes when you see more of the big bad it completely ruins it and it ruins the suspense but when it's you know a massive like writhing weird demonic characters i want to stare at that for ages it's part mm. of why i absolutely love the new doom game uh new i think it came out in 2020 because you you get to just stand and look at all these hellscapes and these you can just get a real eyeful of everything and this movie did that for me absolutely to the max you get to spend so much time with these monsters yes you're getting glimpses of them but you're able to really see what they're all about you can see how they move you can see how they communicate how they act you get a real feeling for the society that they live in um you're not just like there's no skin flint kind of like we'll give you a glimpse and then we're moving on kind of thing it's really quite detailed and graphic the amount that you get to see the monsters and i love that about this well, I think you get to see them. I think it's glimpses, but there's lots of glimpses. Yeah. And I think that's that's sort of the magic of it, really. I think the Midian scenes are lit in a way that I that I wouldn't do it, but then I don't have $10 million or whatever. So, mm. like, I think everything is lit in a way that makes it feel fake. I don't know if it's a choice, like, what's the movie? Over the Rainbow. Wizard of Oz. Like right. if it's if it's meant to be like this is what reality looks like and it's cold and it's grey and sure and then this is what Midian looks like and there are colours and it's bright this is this is this is real this is real but like that that lighting doesn't make it look real to me it makes it look mm. extra fake it looks like if the guy holding the boom mic farted the entire set has collapsed <laughs> it feels to me like Buffy effects i.e. Yeah. budget I think. Uh, I mean, 10 million bucks is a lot, but is it that much? Not no. really in terms of movie making magic. I don't dislike the fakeness. I, it doesn't take me out of it really because I love practical effects and even the shittest practical effects to me are still badass. Like I yeah. love how everything looks in this. And you're right, the lighting is very of its time. I had a really decent HD version of this, so uh, it looked maybe a little bit smoother than than some of the other versions out there. But I, I think... The, the level of detail and the care and attention that goes into all these monsters is what makes it look real to me because 
uh, yeah, I know I'm looking at, so obviously I'm not looking at a fucking real monster, but what I am looking at is the closest fucking thing you can get with actual things in the world. Yeah. And that I love and respect. But I also love the practical effects and stuff like Buffy. It doesn't it doesn't feel that fake to me. I think there's just a, a niche that this inhabits in terms of visuals where for, some, for a, a viewer like me who loves that kind of stuff, I'm all in. I don't question it. It's not something that pulls me out of it, especially because it's so creative and so inventive. It's yeah. it's exactly the kind of shit that you would imagine when you think of a place like Midian, whatever it is. You know, it's populated with these beings, and and I think it really brings it to life. Clive Barker is quite a workmanlike director. I think mm. he's, I think he as a, as as a director, there's very little flourish there. I think he likes to set up the camera and and let the production design do the do the talking. So there's sure. no, well, there are very few like interesting camera moves. Um, in this or in any of his other films, I was thinking because I was obviously looking at looking at Nightbreed this time with a much more critical eye than I have before, and I was wondering if maybe the cinematographer on this or the director of photography on this is a is different to Hellraiser, and that's why it's so different in terms of like its cinematic scope. Mm. I think Hellraiser feels a lot more like a movie. This looks maybe a bit more like a TV movie. Definitely very TV. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, but it's the same director of photography. Interesting. So I wonder if it's just a money thing. They didn't have time or money to to light things a certain way or to, I don't know, have smooth dolly tracks or, mm. or whatever. So they just did what they could. There are a couple of really good scene, uh, really good shots that I really liked. The smashed window with the blue sky is just really sort of evocative of like superhero stories, mm-hmm. which is what Nightbreed is essentially. I'll come back to that in a little bit, but yeah, the the sort of the weird Wizard of uh, Wizard of Oz Gone with the Wind scene at the end, where they're yeah. stood and like it's all hazy and sepia, and the corn ears are blowing in the wind, and mm-hmm. all the all the the remaining Nightbreed are waiting in the barn, and it's just like it sort of feels old Hollywood, and I think that's really beautiful. There's also the crane shot of like Boone when he's dead, and it's sort of yeah. zooming out from him. It's just great, just really like lovely image. Obviously, not lovely image, but like it feels like they've killed Boone, and and, and we're we're an hour into the movie, so it's like, what the fuck is meant to happen next? <laughs> yes, for sure. So it's like it's really leaning into that, which is great. And then the 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 only other one that I really liked, um, and it's kind of shitty, but I really like it is when they mount the camera on the gurney that wheels wheels him into the morgue. Yeah, that was one of my big ones. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. Because that's very, to me, that's very slasher, yeah. And, and in the purest way, you know, it's very Friday the Thirteenth. But there's a couple of shots I, I love as well. You mentioned a few that I was really into. Anything with a horizon, the horizon's placed really well in this movie, and it doesn't feel like a shitty set. There's lots of you know clever mist work and stuff like that, mm. that that's great. There's a couple of really nice rush shots into action where you get the camera starting low and flying upwards. Again, feels very TV. As soon as you mentioned Boone's death around the hour mark, I thought that's classic TV pacing, right? There's, yeah. there's an ad break. <laughs> we'll see what happens next. So, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing the the TV uh, TV devices playing out in this movie. Maybe it's of the time. I'm not sure, but the the cinematography. I think you're right. Not flashy. Definitely not. You know, leading the charge in terms of how the visuals are constructed in the movie, but really effective at times. And especially given the fact that. Maybe we're not completely in love with some of the set design or some of the limitations of the set design, like the confines that we have to shoot in. But 
some of the the broader shots, some of the more establishing type shots, I think are really, really well done. Yeah. Uh, maybe not enough credit given uh, for that in a movie that is kind of limited in in scope by. Yeah, I, th- I think the, the the mats look amazing, like the matte paintings. Where for it, where sure. It's like here's fucking Calgary, guys. It's like it looks incredible. It looks it looks really, really real in my opinion. Yeah. And when it doesn't, it looks that kind of fantasy reel that you allow it to to not be perfect. But yeah. I, I genuinely found them quite convincing. <laughs> like, it took me a minute to be like, holy crap, they really uh, really nailed that shot. That's because it's a painting. <laughs> well, yeah, so I, 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 when I watched it the first time in the last few days, mm-hmm. I was really taken in. And then when, when I watched it again this afternoon with the commentary, um, I was like, oh shit, there's a very clearly Matt's. Like, it's very clear when you're... When you when you really sort of focus in on them, it's like oh yeah, but they do some really amazing stuff. So they, Clive Barker talks on the commentary about how the matte painter they're sort of painted on glass, mm-hmm. and you can move the clouds, and the, so it changes the way that the, the light comes through. So it lights no the, the things differently, and it's it's just like the, the genius of like matte painting for movies is just it's amazing. That is really incredible. The fact yeah. that it's it's a dynamic lighting tool as well as a background set piece. I think that's absolutely amazing. Mm. And that's why I love them. Because until you scrutinize, until you look into the... Which you're not supposed to do. Do you know what I mean? Like this isn't yeah. how this movie was supposed to be talked about. <laughs> no. Until you get in there and fuck with it, you're just perceiving that skyline and it's great. It doesn't fucking matter how it was made or how it was put there. It's effective, it's evocative, and it makes you feel like you're in a real place like the movie is real so a thing that i wanted to talk to you about mm-hmm. is a thing that i think is really cool and it's actually one of the reshoots that they did uh, after they tried to change it for the theatrical and they kept it into the director's cut okay which i think is a really interesting subversion of like a traditional slasher piece of storytelling and that's when decker goes to see the guy in the shop after he leaves midian for the first time yeah and this guy is like warning him away which you get so often in slasher movies to the point where it's like spoofed a bit in Cabin in the Woods. They call him the Harbinger. And the idea that he's he's not trying to be selfish or he's not trying to be altruistic to these to the people coming. Something scary here, you should keep away. It's like he's just trying to protect Midian. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. And that actor's really good. John Agar is like been in thousands and thousands of things going back to like the 50s. Mm-hmm. And I just I really love that scene. Um, he's great because he's not like a rural kook. He's mm. not a stereotype. He's not two dimensional in any way. You know, as his backstory kind of unravels a little bit in his interrogation, you are left a bit feeling like, oh, he wanted to be a part of that and he wasn't able to be, and yeah. now he's doing everything he can to at least, uh, you know, give them the dignity of solitude and, and protect them in that way, which I I found really touching as well, and I like that scene. Because you're right, not just because it fucked with the whole, you know, subverting the slasher tropes, but but anytime you get a character that could be die cut and you make them really uh, animated and memorable, then yeah, I think it's great. It's almost like that scene in Wayne's World where they get, they replace the guy with Charlton Heston to deliver the line. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) In Wayne's World too. It felt like that. It felt like this guy's too good for this like tiny part. Oh wait, no, he's perfect for it because it's exactly what it calls for. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's also just a cool scene. The fucking taxidermy dog getting its head cut off. Yeah, <laughs> some fun now, stuff like, in there. Decker and his John Lennon shades. Like, <laughs> yeah. Decker is such a slimy presence. 
Yeah. Like he feels so creepy. I think he's of the time as well. There's a lot of a lot of villains in this era of filmmaking that have that same kind of feeling to me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's an objective sliminess, but definitely I think to people our age who grew up when we grew up, I think those are the guys you avoid. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You avoid yeah. them like the plague. He embodies that really well. Is it Last Action Hero mm-hmm. where it's Charles Dance and he's got the one eye and he's just so slimy? Sure. It's like a similar vibe, obviously. Yeah. I mean, they're both amazing actors. Mm-hmm. Cronenberg hasn't done an awful lot of acting, but like in this one role, did you know that he's playing it gay, by the way? Really? Yeah. So he said to uh, Clyde Barker when they were when they were starting shooting, he's like, I'm going to play it gay. Is that okay? And Barker was like, yeah, man, go nuts. <laughs> When he used those exact words. Yeah. I'm going to play it gay. Brilliant. No, I didn't. I did not pick up on that as like an overt aspect of the performance or the character. There's, there's no part where he's blatant about that. There's no part where he declares no. that. No. No, absolutely not. It's just like he has a, a gayness to him, I guess. I wonder internally. What that, yeah, I wonder what that meant to him as part of the performance or, or why you would make that very specific I guess motivation choice. Where, mm. where does the, where do you think that comes into the character? Is it a repress? Is it maybe a repressed thing that he's? Yeah, I guess that's maybe why he wants to destroy Midian. Yeah. Okay. Because his motivation is not clear, right? We're kind of given that he's just a bit of a psycho serial killer. Yeah. And he has very specific ideas about evil that aren't particularly well. Uh, articulated I guess in the movie that's my only letdown really is some of the characters motivation isn't 100% clear to me that's why that's fascinating that there's there's that much depth gone into his characterization that you don't necessarily get to see yeah so I read in in that piece in Fangoria that Mm. he he basically wrote a big old backstory to his character that wasn't there on the page because he wanted to bring a bit more to it obviously and it's his own headcanon but Mm -hmm. like he wanted to bring that in because he wanted to understand who this guy was. Mm. He said, I think he said that it was a bit flimsy on the page. Right. Because, and you see that a lot in process, right? People write their own, yeah. their own backstory that, you know, there's a, there's yeah. a method approach of creating that. as an Yeah. Actor. I think Paul Dano wrote an entire, uh, Riddler comic no way. That, that, that got released off the back of like him doing Batman, the Batman. Nice. You know, I saw him in recently where he absolutely kicked my ass. I thought he was fantastic. Paul Dano. I rewatched, Dano. Yeah, I rewatched um, the Brian Wilson movie, uh, Love and Mercy. And he plays Brian Wilson as a younger man. And John Cusack plays Brian Wilson as an older man. And I loved that movie when I first saw it. I went to see it in the cinema. Absolutely loved it. I rewatched it recently, uh, knowing more about Paul Dano since then. And I, I think he absolutely smokes it. It's one of his best performances. I loved it. I, I don't know if I see him as Brian Wilson. I know. It's such a bizarre casting choice. But I, I definitely don't see fucking... John Cusack. <laughs> yeah, right? It, it's a weird and wonderful movie, man. It's got uh, Paul Giamatti plays Cusack's abusive therapist. There's your connective tissue. Eugene Landy. We love that. Yeah, exactly. Very much worth a look. I wholeheartedly recommend that movie. Yeah. Speaking of um, great movies with Paul Giamatti in... Yeah. Have you seen Have you seen uh, John Dies at the End? No. Well, I think maybe I'm going to rocket that up the list because I'm okay. I'm ready for a rewatch. Nice. I love him in, uh, and this is not going to be a popular opinion, but I love him in Cinderella Man with mm. Russell Crowe. Did you know that he was going to play Colonel Tom 
in the sequel to Bubba Hotep, what? which which focused on Sebastian Half battling vampires. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Yeah. I'd love to see him as the Penguin in a Batman reboot. I love Paul Giamatti. Me too. Huge fan. I think I think Sideways it's one of my all-time favourite films. God damn, I love that movie so much. So good. That was a rental victory for me. I rented it with like looking at it like two fucking guys go to wine country. Why am I renting this? And it was fucking great. It's it's like it's a perfect movie. Yeah, it's like a. I think in my head I always had it as like a thinking man's. Oh, fuck, dude, does my car? <laughs> thinking man's dude, where's my car? <laughs> well, dude, does my car is actually secretly intelligent. It's one of those. I love dude, where's my car? Yeah, for me, it's a, it's a, it's a thinking man's swingers, and I fucking love swingers. I think that's that's a perfect read. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's there's no beating that. Who's the other dude in, in Sideways? Sorry if we're going to have to cut all this out. This Thomas is Hayden Church. Interesting to anyone. Thomas Hayden Church, right. Okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe the first movie I'd seen him in when I watched, the, when I watched Sideways. You're telling was... me that you hadn't seen George of the Jungle. <laughs> uh, I must have, actually, because I think my younger brother loved it. But, but this plays was 2004. Do you know what I mean? Like Lyle van der Groot. Lyle van der Groot. And you hadn't seen... Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. Come on now. I would have. Yeah, I absolutely would have. I love Tales from the Crypt. Maybe just didn't recognize him. He looked a bit more grizzled. He's great. Right. Back to Nightbreed. I can, with authority, say that you love this movie, right? Absolutely. It's been, like I say, a firm favorite since I was a kid. Rental VHS times. Mm-hmm. Bought the DVD pretty early in my DVD buying career. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Why did you? I know no one can see this, but the, <laughs> the face you made when you said career—because career isn't the right fucking word, is it, Sam? <laughs> it's so funny. Sorry, <laughs> you could have made a career out of it. You could build a house with the DVDs you got. Yeah, and then my my love of it was was like reinvigorated when I read the book, which was like maybe a little bit later, as in my early twenties, mm. and then. By how how much of a factor the Cradle of Filth album Midian has been throughout my my entire adult life, mm-hmm. like it, the last Cradle of Filth album that I really loved, probably the most accessible Cradle of Filth album. Well, let's not skim over that then. Should we talk a little bit about Cradle? Yeah, of I've got Filth? a whole section in my notes about Cradle of Filth. Don't worry. Well, then let's let's go. Let's visit your friend and mine, Danny Filth, Suffolk's yeah. finest son. Tell me a little bit about, uh, first of all, how you feel about Midi and the Cradle of Filth album, but also what you think about the relationship between that record and this movie. I love that record. Mm-hmm. It was, it hit me, yeah, it hit me at the exact right time. Yep. 2000, I was 15. Mm-hmm. I was already a fan of Cradle of Filth, had been into them for a while, hugely into Dusk and Her Embrace and um, Cruelty and the Beast. Um, and... Like I say, this this album is very accessible as a as a, a black a symphonic black metal album. Mm-hmm. Like I mean, it got Ghost in the Fog got loads of play on Kerrang TV around that time. Lots of video play, yeah, on, yeah. on MTV Two as well. Uh, yeah, it was it was kind of everywhere. VH One, like it was busy. And it's a great song. It's a little bit hacky uh, in that sort of cradle of filth way that is kind of beautiful, but kind of Danny Filth can just write 
a thousand words and they're all amazing. Yeah, and and we're going to come from slightly different angles here because I don't like that song very much and I'm not an enormous Midian fan, i got to be honest. I'm, I'm much more of a, uh, a critic of this album, I think. But having, having well, baby, now... Come on. Well, dude, it's just not my favorite. Like it's got it's got some bangers, don't get me wrong, but I hated Her Ghost in the Fog when it came out. Absolutely hated it. It's cuz it's like if you're not into Cradle of Filth, it's it's very much just noise. I don't know. I, it wasn't really that that I disliked and I was into Cradle of Filth. I absolutely loved Cruelty and the Beast. It's one of my favorite albums of all time. I'd put it firmly in my top 10. It just for me, I did. I, I'm not big on the th- the theatrical side of the band. Sometimes when it goes in in this particular direction, again, Jamie's making incredulous faces. <laughs> but the theatrics for me are, are better when they're a little bit more visceral. Yeah, and they're less fantasy esque. I guess is what I'm trying to say badly. But when you bring in all that additional instrumentation, uh, I guess when Danny's voice does a lot of the things it does in that song, it's not. It's just not my favorite part of their yeah. career. It's their fourth album. It's it's incredibly focused on this this one specific theme and aesthetic and it just wasn't for me that's not yeah. to say i don't listen to it all the fucking time because i do <laughs> like every autumn it's very much in my rotation well it's because it's so accessible and also yeah. none of the other albums have those gian Pires, like pick scrapes which yeah. are so iconic and so amazing and like yeah. i think he left the band shortly after this right yeah, yeah. and like well, did he come back i'm not sure probably there's there's absolute revolving door of people yeah <laughs> yeah for sure but yeah, so I think the relationship between the film or the book and the album is pretty mm-hmm. fucking tenuous. Right. I've spent a lot of time poring over all of the lyrics. And like, um, from what I understand, the only song that is really about or that directly references the the plot and things that happen in Cabal and Nightbreed mm-hmm. is the song Tortured Soul Asylum. Right. And the others just sort of reference Midian, and I think, I think I remember a while back reading um, an interview with Danny Filth where he talks about how that's the song, and all of the others are just sort of imagining other nightbreed creatures. Mm-hmm. And I think the song "Torture Soul Asylum" is fucking incredible. That's like a proper Cradle of Filth song. It sounds like Vampire to me. It is a good song, definitely, and I it's think like, it's you know really raw. It is, and it, yeah, it does feel old school, Cradle of yeah. Filth, but not in like a, a, a sort of aping Norwegian black metal kind of way in all the right ways. Mm. Uh, it is worth saying, I think one of my top five all-time Cradle of Filth songs is on Midian. I love Cthulhu Dawn. I think it's... I, I was convinced some of my, I was convinced what? you were going to say Lord of Borshan. Uh, no, also a fan. Oh, but it, amazing it's song. some what of my favourite... Some of my favourite like metal lyrics of all time. Spatter the stars, douse their luminosity with our amniotic wretch. Like, what the fuck? That's fucking awesome. There's a line in um, Torture Soul Asylum that I really love, which is, these visions struck like a furious fuck. <laughs> Vintage Danny. It's so good. Like, how how does he... Like, he's written, what, 500 songs at this point? God and me. every single one of them is a gigantic fucking gothic essay. <laughs> I forget one of the six words in some of my songs sometimes. <laughs> How can he remember? How can you retain that kind of... I mean, I will always remember all the lyrics to Cthulhu Dawn. I guess when they're memorable, you remember them. That's my problem. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Remember good lyrics. He is he, he, he is a phenomenal uh, writer, incredible wordsmith, good old Suffolk boy, and, and we love you, Danny, if you're in some parallel universe hearing any of this. 
but there is you know there is obvious connective tissue at least aesthetically between this record you know i, I read a lot about midian when it came out and it did have kind of clive barker hype um i think it's safe to say danny filth was just hugely inspired by a concentrated period of time when he was into a lot of clive barker stuff yeah so so it, you know for me they kind of are in the same universe and and i think I'm not, you know, I do like the album. I'm not saying I don't like it at all. It's just not one of my favorites. And I'm a really passionate Cradle of Ville fan. So I, I, do, I do think it rips. And there was probably part of me when I was younger associating subtly some of those lyrics and some of the aesthetics with all the little drip feedy bits of Clyde Barker stuff that I'd seen over the years without realizing. Mm. And that coalesced when I watched this movie. I was like, right, okay, holy shit, I get it. I can see why this would be so inspirational to someone like Danny Filth. Uh, so it is a really cool piece of connective tissue there. That those those things exist in the same artistic world. Yeah, I think there's also something interesting in that um, Dusk and Her Embrace, the song, mm. has a has a bit that echoes part of the Danny Elfman score of this. The na 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 yeah. I just got a notification from Zoom saying, are you playing music? No, I'm just a really good fucking singer, all right? Um, <laughs> are, you, are you doing a note-perfect acapella rendition of A Ghost in the Fog right now? What is this? It's Dusk and Her Embrace. Sorry, Dusk and Her Embrace. Which is off a completely different album. Which is what it is a banger. I think it just speaks to how much Danny and the gang, Danny and the lads... Danny um, and the gang. How much they they liked Nightbreed and how it must have just... I, I don't know if that was intentional or mm. if it just sort of seeped into the consciousness. Well, it, that's a great spot. Like, I wouldn't have seen that in a million years. That's an awesome, awesome spot. And I think it... I, I, I realised it today because I knew that there was a bit in a Cradle of Filth song that, mm. that echoed that Nightbreed music. And I went mm. through Midian six fucking times being like, <laughs> where is this... Where is this... <laughs> Where's this bit of music? Like, where is this this moment that, that echoes the, the the overall theme, the Danny Elfman theme? Yeah. And then I was like, and I listened to Midian six times. I like scrubbed through it. Yeah. Every song over and over and over again. And then I was yeah. like, it's fucking Dusk and Dusk Air Embrace. Uh, you didn't have to suffer Midian six times. I love <laughs> Midian. I, I think I think not only is it my favorite Cradle of Filth album. I think it's in my top five albums of all time. I don't. I don't think it's their best, but it's sure. the time, the place, the the bangers. It's fucking yeah. great. Like when I listen to Cruelty of the Beast, every song on that is a banger, but they don't mm. sit in my brain the way that Midian songs do. I love um, that. That's your fave. I think that's fucking awesome. It's just I was fifteen when it came out. I was fifteen and already like well in on Cradle of Filth and it was mm. hey, you know that movie that you like there's an album by a band that you like that's about the movie that you like <laughs> could life be any better right <laughs> like, now like literally <laughs> I totally get it That's that makes 100% perfect sense I'm glad it's your favourite that fucking fits perfectly that's a fairy tale that's yeah. like that's autobiography stuff um, if you had an autobiography would it be called Midian <laughs> um, I think it would be called Satan's Hollow Chronicles. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk about the the weird Satan's Hollow thing? Yeah, absolutely. It's got to be done. So this is interesting to maybe, what, six of our listeners. <laughs> I was going to say four. <laughs> Two of them are us. 
So in the girls' toilets in Satan's Hollow, don't ask me how I know, there was some graffiti that said, to know the night is to live in it forever. And it never occurred to me that that was from this. I don't, mm-hmm. Because it's not quite the quote, maybe. It just sort of never yes. clicked. Ever so slightly different, yeah. You can ask me how I know. I know because when we go into Satan's during the day to record music or whatever, you go to the girls' toilets because you're not allowed to go to the girls' toilets any other time. And because they're always slightly nicer. Not necessarily I mean, in Satan's Hollow. but During the day when it's lit up weird. Satan's Hollow, for anyone that doesn't know, is a nightclub in Manchester that was owned previously by Richard O'Brien and has a gigantic fiberglass Satan in the corner with glowing eyes and like gooey dripping pillars of gooey, gooey, gooey stuff. I always thought it was like writhing souls in the pillars and stuff. You'd lean up against one and you'd have like a a hideous face in your ear and all kinds of weird shit. It's great. So pretty Doom Eternal-esque. Absolutely. And that's why I love it so much. Yeah, it's a a great place to spend a bit of time. It's a great time and place to spend your entire youth of your Jamie Carruthers. I really went there three times a week for five years. (laughs) Incredible. I only turned thirty in there to the to the sound of Danzig, mother, <laughs> with a, with a blue wicked. It's a place that is hugely significant in your story. I think that's why it needs yeah. to be mentioned in this. You know, in this yeah. Podcast. So in in the in the toilet there was a, there was this graffiti that said to know the to know the night is to live in it forever, and we were always so fascinated by this graffiti. And uh, our acquaintances uh, leagues apart. Not acquaintances, they're our bloody best mates, aren't they? Acquaintances is so cold. <laughs> Those guys that we knew that were in that band. No, so yeah, so Leagues Apart, who were, who were good pals of ours, wrote a song called To Know The Night Is To Live In It Forever, but not knowing where the quote came from. And I'm so mad that all this time I fucking knew. You, you spot the organ part. In the obscure Cradle of Filth song that matches perfectly the like four seconds of the Danny Elfman score of the movie that you love, but you don't spot the direct quote every time you piss in that toilet three times a week for five years. I love that. I didn't piss in the girls' to- I only pissed in the girls' toilets maybe once or twice, and that was okay, when we were fair when we recorded that first Throwing Stuff record where it was like Doug doing all these fucking yelly shout vocals, and it was very silly. Well, I think great though is that somebody wrote that graffiti on the wall obviously knowing i, mean, I think that's an incredibly poignant phrase and yeah, not absolutely. just because of you know our weird little relationship with it but leagues apart then title a song you twig years later that it's from nightbreed and elway the band elway from uh, fort collins colorado then uh have a song called the english whisper wishbone which is about me and james hull which has the line to know the night was to live in it forever i think it's past tense and also has a callback to, to one of my lyrics. So it, it, it persists. I don't know if uh, Tim and the guys from Elway know that it's from Nightbreed. I'd be amazed if they do, given that James didn't know it was from Nightbreed when he titled a song based on a graffiti on the wall of a nightclub. So I love that it's it's permeated you know, a whole different artistic strand and it, it continues yeah. to live on in song. I think it's a it's a great line. I think it's it's really evocative. It's deeply poetic. I love that it's gone from the wall of Satan's Hollow right through to being in a couple of great songs. I think that's really cool. It's a cool line. Yeah, it's just a really cool little turn of phrase. It's haunting and kind of ghostly and dreamy. I love it. Yeah. I mean, the line in the film is slightly different. To know the light and to live in it forever. And yeah. live in it forever. So whoever wrote it on the wall, 
Got it. Got it wrong. Dicker. Try again. Yeah. Maybe it was a time traveler uh, who heard the Elway song and wanted to come back in time and warn us about the next Elway album, and did a really bad job of it by writing it on the girls' toilet wall in Satan's. Are there any other songs or albums we want to call out just while we're on a bit of a music kick? <laughs> Sorry, uh, I love um, the, the idea that the all the Cradle of Filth guys are just really heavily influenced by Danny Elfman. I think is is worth noting. Uh, mm. that's I think there's a, a lot thing. of that in there. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a huge thing. And the fact that Danny Elfman's involved in this movie, superb, absolutely perfect coupling there. Sometimes I feel like nowadays Danny Elfman and the music. Uh, of the movies that he's a part of are so sort of ubiquitous and su- such a part of a specific genre that some people get a bit eye rolly about it. And, oh, Danny Elfman, you know, it's, it becomes a bit of a, I don't want to say cliche, but but people kind of take it for granted a little bit. And I think when you get a score like this, you're reminded of the greatness a bit. There's, there's less of the huge iconic pieces and there's a lot more of the real subtle, slowly building. And then you realize, oh, I'm being absolutely bombarded by the score and I didn't see it creeping up. Very clever um, sort of sinister music in this. I think the 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 eye rolling uh, Danny Elfman now is 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 horseshit, and mm. I and I hate anyone that does that because it's the alternative cynical. is Nine Inch Nails scores that are just like creaky sounds or your Hans Zimmer like <laughs> like nobody wants that. Good Hans Zimmer, by the way. Very. Good. I mean that's that's the entire Hans Zimmer back catalogue I just did for you there <laughs> so dismissive wait Zoom has just said are you perfectly <laughs> recreating Hans Zimmer scores now because you might get a copyright strike um, I agree you, why why people have to be so cynical about stuff I have no idea and that if you're if you're a new listener to our podcast is exactly what we stand against yeah. the sort of you know cynical eye rolling too cool for this bullshit of the world we're all about full plum pumpage we love fandom we love positivity we love focusing on the good stuff in these movies and i love danny elfman unashamedly i've always said that i just like liking things yeah absolutely some of the fun the most fun you can have is being into stuff right yeah like absolutely like if 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 we watch a movie and it's shit like so shit that we just hate it we're not going to do a podcast about it i'm just not going to talk about it probably to anyone at all i'm just going to move on (laughs) I'm just going to move on with my life. Like, we don't need, like, Cinemasca already exists. Like, Half in the Bag already exists. Like, we don't Mm -hmm. need that. Like, I don't really engage too much with that stuff because I'm all about positivity positivity these days. Absolutely. And and I have a similar approach. I don't know, maybe it's part of, like, aging a little bit. But nowadays, if I start reading a book that I don't think I like, I don't really persevere with it anymore. I don't know if that's the same as what we're talking about, but I'm not going to push myself through a negative experience to try and drag something positive out of it at the end necessarily. However, if I have an experience that has both positive and negative, I would much prefer to focus artistically on praising the positive and enjoying it. I would much rather focus on uh, you know, the positive of something than, than dwell on the negative and be hypercritical of it because I think that's an absolute rabbit hole. You spend your whole life down there. And that's that's no way to live. And I think part of fandom is acknowledging that a lot of the stuff you love is kind of junk or easily dismissed by the mainstream. Absolutely. The more we celebrate that, the the more we have to celebrate. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We love Cradle of Filth. You might Mm -hmm. have guessed that from the chat earlier. Like we love Cradle of Filth. Like most people don't love Cradle of Filth. 
Mm-hmm. Most people think that Cradle of Filth are a t-shirt company that have five members. <laughs> Suffolk's finest t-shirt company. Literally. I mean, that's okay. Yeah. I think that Dan, Danny Davey is one of the greatest lyricists of all time. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to. It's no. Okay. I mean, you do. Of course you don't. But, I, but, I do. Yeah. That's why we're hanging out. I, I once saw, very recently, Cradle of Filth on Halloween night at the Roundhouse in Camden, playing Crotey and the Beast, front to back, plus an entire set of bangers afterwards. And I wore a cowl to that show. <laughs> I bought and wore a cowl to that show. And my girlfriend did not stop taking the piss out of me for about two years afterwards. But I had the night of my life. It was incredible. Yeah. And yeah, if you can lean into that, go for it, dude. Let it rip. Absolutely. That's what we're here for. Yeah. So, so Nightbreed I've, sucks. It's bo- <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a few more things that I want to say about Nightbreed, like mostly about the, the the big climactic battle. Yeah, for sure. So let's maybe hover back that way. Eigerman and his little band of insane Night of the Living Dead redneck militia people. Mm-hmm. Eigerman has the shortest journey from these people don't exist. This is a whole, this is a load of fucking hooey to let's go and kill them all immediately. Yeah. Like it's like one scene where he's like Midian, that's a load of whole shit. Yeah. And then it's like, wait, Boom got shot. Wait, he must be a nightbreed. Let's go there immediately and kill everybody now. Is <laughs> a one foot pivot <laughs> yeah. around a one eighty degree arc. He's <laughs> literally they don't exist. We must exterminate them. <laughs> and like. Again, I think the, the the movie is such like a whistle stop tour of the novel mm. that you that you lose a lot of that nuance in the novel. He is he has a bit more of a journey there. There's a bit more a bit more psychology that Decker plays on him to sort of get him into that position. Mm-hmm. But it, I think it's hilarious in the movie. I really just enjoy it. Yeah, the priest Ashbury has a, a similar journey where he is like very empathetic to the Nightbreed yeah. until some shit gets on his face and suddenly. <laughs> Kill them all immediately. I forgot. I forgot he was even in it. But you, you make a great point. He is a hilarious character in yeah. this movie in terms of his very brief, very tiny arc. Uh, he's great. Like at one point, he's going to shoot Eigerman because Eigerman is like so mad with like lust for death. Yeah, but he doesn't, and then he suddenly hates the Nightbreed mm-hmm. at the end of the director's cut. He joins forces with Eigerman, right? And they are um, setting up for a sequel that never happens, where Ashbury and Eigerman come together to try and defeat the uh, the, the remaining Nightbreed. Mm-hmm. In the theatrical cut, he reanimates the corpse of Decker by like spreading a load of goo inside his wound. Whoa! And it, and it ends with like this really insane scene where Decker is like tied to a. Uh, to a statue of an angel from the graveyard. He's got his mask on and his suit and he's all bloody. And Ashbury puts his hand into the into the wound and like spreads a load of goo out. And then he wakes up and he's screaming and his arms are out and he's like, whoa. And it's great. I it's like great. that. Yeah. It's a cool ending. Doesn't make any fucking sense. Mm. Like, it just doesn't. And like I, I always thought that the um Decker was screaming there because he's a nightbreed now and he fucking hates the nightbreed. Yeah, I mean, that tracks. I haven't seen it, but based on your description. So I think it makes more sense. Um, and especially in that sort of X-Men 
allegory or X-Men um, theme, it makes more sense that, that he would team up with a human mm. and that they would try and come together, try and like find his humanity or sure. maintain his humanity by teaming up with like a human sure. when he's become a freaky nightbreed with weird flappy mullet hair and a, yeah. and a distended face. Distended. But there's so much like insanity in that, in that final battle, that climactic battle. It just goes yeah. on and on. Oh, a, a question that I didn't ask you when we were talking about the um, the Nightbreed. Uh-huh. Sexy porcupine lady, yes or no? Absolutely, of course. Look who you're asking. I wasn't sure if she's actually sexy or if I was just 15 when I first saw this movie, 14. Absolutely both. I mean, I don't even need to ask you, do I? <laughs> like, you, you yeah. yes. Yeah, obviously yes. I, I could never quite tell if I was just... Because obviously the movie wants you to think she's sexy. But when you're 15, any person on the screen who acts sexy, you're attracted to. That's why watching movies as a kid is so confusing. <laughs> it's weird as well, because like the Rachel character is, is never sort of presented sexually, mm. but has her boobs out at one point. And True. I was wiped that memory from my brain and only remembered the sexiness of the porcupine lady, Shooter Sassy. I mean, it's a tangent, but I think we, I'm not talking about our whole fucking generation or people like us or anything, but you and I, I think I can say with authority, were conditioned to find women acting in that way sexy as kids. Mm. Um, really over lip-licking, leery, sexualized female characters were what what was used for buy-in for our age group <laughs> and what was kind of uh, pushed upon us, I think. And that's exactly why, of course, I found her hot as hell when I watched it at age 38. Of course I did. You know, I was immediately putting myself exactly where you're putting me right now. I'm this character in the middle of an apocalyptic battle for this safe haven for misfits. Do I break from the group in order to have sex with this clear siren who is going to destroy me as soon as I touch her? Yes. Yes, I do. If I was a man in a movie... Yeah. And... <laughs> And during the big climactic battle that I was spending my life leading up to, yeah. one of the people that I was trying to kill made an advance to me. I wouldn't fuck them. I would. Well, like, I mean... <laughs> of course I mean, you I, would. Of course I would, but I, <laughs> I'd like to think that I'd hesitate and be he like... He does. Oh. That's why he's relatable. He does hesitate, but he still would. Do you want to get murdered by her in a cave? and maybe get some or do you want to just get blown up by a claymore in the middle of fucking nowhere like an idiot from world war one i know where i want to be (laughs) (laughs) yeah fair i sorry that's not the answer that uh other people want to hear but it's the truth it's it's so weird and like i maybe there's there's something deeper happening with that I, I hate you. You're an out. You're an outcast, and I think that you're horrible and shit or whatever. But like, I'll still fuck you. Yeah, that's that's Barker doing what Barker does best, right? He's breaking down those boundaries, uh, and using sex as a really complicated messaging tool and putting people in uncomfortable positions with sexualized characters. Uh, he's he's been fucking with me in that way since the, <laughs> since my first encounter with him and I, it's what i love about any time 
anytime the tone shifts to something sexual in a Clive Barker movie, you know you're about to be put in a difficult position, you know it's going to be uncomfortable, and you know you're going to be made to explore stuff that you don't necessarily want to or get to in other areas of your life. And that's sexy filmmaking at its best, I think. Um, yeah. There's nothing really genuinely sexy about it. You're immediately slightly repulsed. Therefore, he's done his job and he's put you exactly where he wants you. It's really well done. Yeah. Another great scene that's sort of towards the end, another sort of short, quick arc for like one of the human characters is the Hugh Quash's character, yep. uh, Lieutenant Joyce, Detective Joyce, whatever he is. When he's like, again, he seems to be empathetic to Anarka, who looks like a normal guy. Mm-hmm. But then he moves his foot away when he's when he's screaming for help when he's melting into dust or whatever, mm. and it's so it's so little, but it's like I have empathy up to a point. Yeah, it's very telling. That whole scene tells you a yeah. lot about every character involved. I think, and I really like him in this. His facial acting, I, I you know, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know I'm a huge fan of good facial actors. He absolutely kills in the facial acting department. He's so yeah. strong and so just communicative with his uh, his facial presence and yeah you're right it's basically a facial expression and a slight move of the foot tells you everything you need to know about that guy and where he's headed really strong really strong performance and not enough of him I think in my opinion I would have liked more it's weird that like that character is there and then you've also got Eigerman mm. who is way over the top like scenery chewing hammy <laughs> as fuck yeah. like Straight out of a deleted scene from Aliens, like, yeah. like he's just sort of so insane. He's like, he's like, he's absolutely a different movie. He's in like a Joe Dante movie. He's in like Toy Soldiers, Small Soldiers, or something. He's basically going bananas the entire time, right? Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's it's loads of fun, but it's yeah. like, it's the polar opposite performance to what Hugh Quash is giving us. And they're in a lot of similar scenes, right? They're in a yeah. lot of the same scenes. They're acting alongside each other and no one's reining it in. <laughs> no yeah. one's saying, it's, dial it back, bud. It's weird because like they 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 appear together as a, as a throuple like, quite mm. often. It's him, it's Joyce, and it's um, Decker. Mm-hmm. And like it's basically the evolution of wild acting. Because like Cronenberg is obviously having loads of fun. Yeah. And he's giving it like a lot, and it's, a lot of it is quite sort of wry. Mm-hmm. Like you know that he's having fun. And he's got like a little cheeky glint in his eye, yeah, which you don't get with Quash's character at all. And then you've got the complete like amplified distortion pedal version of that with with Eigerman. Yeah, it's 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 such a weird dynamic in those scenes where it's all three of them, but it's great. It's a crazy chemistry, and somehow it works. It's like small medium large the 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 what they bring is like a, an energy that shouldn't really work together but they just kind of slot together like a stack of cups i think they do they do a great job of not treading on each other either they they kind of seem to respect each other's method and just do it together and i think that's great i bet they had some really interesting conversations about you know maybe what their backstory is as a crew but yeah i think I could have done with more Hugh, but that's just a personal thing. And I don't, I don't think it's just because I want to see him more on screen or I, I enjoyed his character more or anything like that. I think it would have done wonders for the narrative to have him lead a little bit more with some of the exposition, mm. just with some of that subtle acting and delivery. That being said, it just makes me really grateful for everything we got of him in the movie. I think, I think he's a, a bit of a scene stealer in a nice kind of quiet way. 
Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because you, you obviously said that the ending pretty overtly tees up some kind of sequel action, yeah. which obviously hasn't hasn't happened yet. Do you think the ending... Uh, well, how, what do you think of the ending? What, what are your thoughts on the the, the, the um, extended director's cut ending? The director's cut ending is, is really weird to me mm. because you have that scene of Laurie and Boone and they're talking and he mm-hmm. he bites her and it's the whole Twilight thing mm-hmm. so they can be together. And then you've got the, the, the night breed, the remaining night breed in, in the, the barn waiting for them. And it's never really clear if... if he's ever going to show up. Mm. And I find that really strange. And obviously it tees up the sequel with the, or it tees up further stories with the, with Eigerman and Ashbury, the priest coming together. But like, you're never really clear that if he's going to go and rejoin the Nightbreed, if he's just going to mm. go and go off with Laurie and live his not life. <laughs> the The idea of him rebuilding Midian was what was interesting to me because that to me was, pure fantasy like i really enjoyed it was almost like sword and sorcery fantasy like now he has to rebuild midian yeah i thought that was really fun i thought i would love to see a sequel where that happens and it's bigger and badder and crazier and weirder but obviously you know we never got that Uh, but i did i i enjoyed the ending i thought it was exactly the kind of uh dramatic semi-melodramatic you know huge scene at the end there with the you know stabbing yourself and being bitten it's very over the top it's very it's kind of classical literature type ending yeah uh, which i really enjoyed then there was a bit of a sort of sputter going back to the barn and all that kind of stuff but i did i did think that the the ending kind of tied things up quite nicely for me in terms of resolution i didn't have a huge amount of unanswered questions that i couldn't quite easily just dismiss in favor of just enjoying the movie and it felt like to me, you know, obviously zooming out and being a bit hypercritical for podcast purposes, a really fucking hard movie to end. Like, yeah. Where where does this go? How do we wrap this up? And I think probably the best of probably 50 terrible ideas playing out there for me in the director's cut ending. Yeah, well, the, the theatrical cut ending is 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 weird. Like I said, mm. there's the whole stuff with, with Ashbury the Priest and Decker, and he's like, oh, master, master. It's like that. It's like, oh. it's weird. Some Renfield vibes. Yeah. Okay. And then there's also there's a version of the scene of Laurie and Boone. Uh, Narcisse shows up because Narcisse doesn't die in the theatrical cut. Interesting. Um, and he's like, "Oh, I've never touched a legend before." What a line! <laughs> and it's like, what's the word? It's really like nailed on that he's going to go and rebuild Midian, which I think is a bit ambiguous in the director's cut. It's mm-hmm. like there's there's the, there's that question that sort of hang, hangs over them. After he changed, after he turns Laurie, and it's like mm. they, the people in the, like the, the the scene in the theatrical cut, there's a lot more connective tissue between those two shots. Mm-hmm. So you feel like the thing that's happening with Laurie and Boone and Narcisse is happening very close to the barn, whereas in the director's cut, they could be different planets. Right you feel like they're just waiting. They're just there waiting for Boone to p- please return to help us rebuild Midian. Mm. And I think that's a little bit more ambiguous. I, I I mean, I like both endings. I never really understood why Ashbury would want to reanimate Decker. Sure. That never, that never really landed, never really sat well with me. It was a cool, cool imagery. Mm. And it's a cool way to end the movie with the bad guy screaming into the camera. Yeah, kind of crucified. Yeah. 
but it never really made any sense to me. Like they, yeah. Decker and Ashbury barely interact in the director's say, cut. Yeah, so not like, enough of their relationship really to warrant yeah. that kind of huge action at the end. And like they, they, they don't kill Narcisse because he tested well. Yeah, right. In like in test screenings, so mm. and obviously because he's the coolest fucking guy. He's yeah, a he's sleazy little bisexual necrophiliac. What's With not a to love? Dog. Yeah. No, that's not him. Narcisse is. Oh, the, sorry. Yeah, of course. Narcisse is the guy that cuts his face off. Yeah, yeah. He's a uh, kind of Pascal from uh, Pet Cemetery vibes at times for me. Yeah, he's just so so creepy and so sexually aggressive. Yeah. But like you, can't, you can't help but love him. Yeah, agreed. Will you give it up, man? Nobody's out there. We're alone. Oh no, there's somebody out there. I'm picking up all this crosstalk. So Nightbreed fits quite nicely into a lot of areas of cinema that you love, mm. and a lot of aspects of horror that that tick a ton of your boxes. I'm gonna guess this ranks quite highly for you in the all-time fave stakes potentially it's tricky because i don't think it's good mm. but i think it's amazing like mm-hmm. i think there are a lot of things that, about it that could be better mm-hmm. but i don't think it would change how i feel about it it echoes what you said about midian you don't think it's the best but it's your favorite yeah it just it just like it really resonated with me at a time in my life when when i needed something like this mm. and it's been with me ever since and it's sort of changed and morphed and now it's a different thing to what it was. Like literally, physically, a different cut of the movie exists. That's mm. a whole that feels very different. It's a when you watch them back to back, the theatrical and the the director's cut. It's difficult to really see how different how different they are. But like when you when you put a bit of space in between it, the, there's so much missing. There's so much that you're not getting in the theatrical that you are that you do get in the in the director's cut obviously mm. so like it's it's such a different experience and seeing the cabal cut again was was so different and so amazing and so i feel like it's just been there for me at all these different parts of my life like i saw the movie at 14 i heard the record at 15 i read the book at 19 20 i was 2012 was what 11 years ago so i was 28 27 when i saw the cabal cut this version came out in 2014 so it's like it's it's been with me for my whole life always sort of reminding me that it's there like you have a different relationship with things as you get older i'm a such a sucker for like nostalgia because i'm a man approaching his 40s <laughs> with you know a pretty hefty like glory days section which is you know pretty long gone at this point so like whatever I can do to like hold on to those 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 feelings and like the idea that obviously that stuff that stuff morphs and changes as you get older anyway and your relationship with it changes and you see different things and you you understand or maybe resonate with different characters or you see something in there that you didn't see before with with this film specifically like it's it's all new it's a whole different beast and so yeah, I think Nightbreed has just sort of been a been a force for good, like throughout my entire life, which is a thing that you can't say about many films. That's awesome. And therefore, two out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> therefore, can't honestly recommend. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's great that it's it's gone with you through 
essentially through puberty and adolescence right through to you know in different artistic forms adulthood and then towards middle age i think for a for a, what is essentially one movie to to do that in so many different shades is awesome that's great so obviously this is your first watch so give me your your sort of summary of your your overall thoughts well i i, I wanted to watch it again not because i enjoyed it so much that i immediately wanted to you know rewind the tape and watch it again but because i felt like there was bits that i missed on first watch to be completely honest because it is a bit of a sensory overload of a movie you're, you're kind of battered from start to finish uh, it's very melodramatic it's quite explosive there's very big characters kind of dominating and hogging scenes and you're constantly sort of pivoting from side to side and, and trying to understand exactly what Clive Barker is trying to communicate through this hyper hyper speed plot you know it's really fast it's a very mm. very quick galloping pace so I feel like I would love to watch it again to absorb it some more because I think it deserves it I think it warrants it I think it's a very clever movie I think visually I find it very moorish there's so much uh you know quick shot stuff where i'm like fuck i really want to watch that again because i feel like i could i could soak up a little bit more of that yeah. i find the world really interesting i find it a really welcome break in terms of misfit movies because it leans really hard into the misfits being completely hideous and that's great i think i think there's room for that and i think we need more of that it's a pretty naked and, and brazen take on evil i think there's a lot of a lot of stuff happening in there around the idea of evil and misconceptions around evil yeah and I really enjoyed from start to finish undoing all of the shitty ideas I had about this movie without having even seen it when I was a kid, <laughs> just based on the cover. Um, so I, I, I found it really enjoyable from start to finish. I would love to watch it again to soak up some more of the atmosphere. And I think it, it did a great job of creating a world that I found wholly believable and fully entertaining. So I would recommend it to, to anyone who is even slightly leaning towards wanting to explore more of Clive Barker, because that's what it's done for me but also anyone who's looking to kind of dive deeper into the world of all things Midian, because it is a thoroughly satisfying watch. Yeah, and I would also massively recommend the Cradle of Filth album to anyone that likes metal. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have those preconceptions about metal. Mm. I think if you just give it a chance, you'll like it, especially if it's Midian, because it's basically, it's a, a black metal album, but it's also a pop album. It's an incredibly well-produced record as well. Yeah. It's It's enormous fun. It's. I think it would take so many boxes for so many people who maybe haven't dived into a slightly more playful but still very heavy and aggressive poetic style of metal that Cradle of Filth brings. Pretty cool that they're from where I'm from. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and you can also listen to brief interviews with Hideous Men, Bad Leagues <laughs> Apart, that has the song To Know the Night is Living It Forever on it. And uh, what's the Elway record that... I can I can wholeheartedly recommend that. Was it Brief Interviews with Hideous Men? That's what it's called, right? Yeah. The League's Apart record, yeah. Uh, the Best of All Possible Worlds is the Elway album, 2022, Red Scare Industries. Uh, the song we were referencing is called The English Wishbone. Nice. Uh, superb album, superb song, and a superb band. 100% recommend. And also, uh, I'd recommend the film Sideways, if you haven't seen it. <laughs> if you haven't heard of a little-known actor called Paul Giamatti, we recommend his oeuvre. Um, yeah, so I would give if I, I mean I I find it very difficult to score Nightbreed, God. but I would give Sideways ten out of ten. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Um, I think this this review of Sideways has been great. Uh, check out Clive Barker. Yeah, I bet Clive I, Barker drinks loads of fucking Merlot. 
I bet he does. I mean, at this point, how old? How old is he? How old's he? He's still kicking, right? We still got. Yeah, and he he went into toxic shock in 2012. Really? And nearly died. Cracks. But he's he's still going. Cracks isn't a word. <laughs> You're like British Shaggy from Scooby Doo, so why not? <laughs> Cracks. I think um, I I can't rate this movie either because it's so. It has an intangible quality to it that's really difficult to pin down to a conventional ranking system. Absolutely. Uh, it's too cool to be scored. So I'm, I'm just going to say, fuck yeah, Nightbreed. Yeah. Just just watch it. And if you don't like it, then shut up. Yeah. If you don't like it, don't tell us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unless you don't like it in a way that's really funny. Like, it, like, we'll talk about stuff we hate if it's hilariously shit. But that's just for the laughs. It's yeah. not to make anyone feel bad, you know? I I just always try and find something good about whatever I watch. And sometimes the good thing is how bad it is. Well, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know about that, but sure. There must be stuff, there must be things out there that you like because it's so bad. Like, yeah, but I still, I, I like them because I like them. Yeah. So like, I don't know. There was a movie that when I lived with Andy called uh, called Munchie, right? Mm. Which is about a little fucking. It was the, so they made a film called Munchies, right? Which is basically a Gremlins ripoff, and these little right. fucking Munchies are like. <laughs> and then they made a film called Munchie, which is about right. one of those, except he's four feet tall, and is voiced by Dom DeLuise, <laughs> and and like it's. Andy made me write him. A formal apology after we watched it. <laughs> a formal apology for making him watch a movie. Yeah, That's so but funny. like, it's fucking hilarious. Like it's right. it's it's meant to be a comedy. It's not funny, but it's fucking hilarious. Right. And like, I don't know, like Birdemic, the film Birdemic, which is it's like, a, it's a feature length movie. It's an hour and twenty long. No wonder yeah. you had to write an apology. <laughs> Like, I just think someone somewhere put all of their fucking effort into making this. This mm-hmm. is the, the story that their heart wanted to tell. Sure. And, like, it's about, you know, a mystical alien creature that wants to, that desperately wants to help this kid stop his mum from getting remarried. Like, it's That's it's a great. great plot. There's a lot yeah. of good movies with almost that exact plot. Yeah. And I just, I just think there's just a real joy in the idea that like someone put I don't know 10 20 million dollars into this fucking munchy movie with Dom DeLuise and like yeah it's I have nothing bad to say about it we're lucky that stuff like that exists it could just easily not exist and then there would just be an absence where that could have been and I think that's amazing this is why I don't believe in guilty pleasures yeah enjoy something don't fucking feel guilty about it this isn't like we're not living in some sort of bizarre feudal Catholic society. Just enjoy what you enjoy. It doesn't Definitely. matter if other people think it sucks or if it's broadly regarded as being terrible because time will out the the truth in that it doesn't fucking matter. It's, it's what you get out of it. It's all your perception of it. I'm going to watch Munchie and I would never make you write a formal apology <laughs> for recommending me a movie. It looks okay. great. Okay. I mean, good. It's good. It's, it's good. Okay. It's good. I believe you. It's good. <laughs> Uh, at the moment, my my girlfriend uh, will only apologise to me using Chat GPT. 
Oh, really? Ever, if, yeah, if there's ever an occasion where she has any cause to offer up any kind of apology to me, she writes it in chat GPT and texts it to me. It's absolutely infuriating. And it's always really formal and really detailed. So I don't know if I can recommend that if anyone's uh, having to make hard apologies out there in the world that are completely insincere. Chat GPT seems to be the go-to. I think we're done, right? I think we should say goodnight. Yeah, for sure. I'm getting hysterical. Uh, as always, Jamie, thank you for Nightbreed. Thank you for spending the time with me talking about it. And thank you for listening. And good night. Goodnight.